been asked this evening to speak about one of the Oasis Nine Habits. And just as a refresher, these are the nine habits that we're looking at in the morning and the evening. Uh, We started, I think, last week on on the habits. So patience, forgiveness, self-control, humility, honesty, being considerate, being joyful, being hopeful and being compassionate. Um, And so this evening I've been asked to speak about hopefulness. And actually, I've been put onto the road to twice to do this in the next uh, uh, couple of weeks, and I've been asked to speak about hopefulness and self-control. And when I told Anna that those were the two topics that I'd been given to speak about, she fell about laughing. Um, She really didn't think I would have a massive amount of insight for you all, either on hopefulness or self-control, it turns out. But anyway, you're going to have to listen to me for 20 minutes, regardless. (laughs) Here we go. Um, I think it's probably a bit like, you know when you uh, pray for patience, and instead of God zapping you with patience, he gives you uh, an irritating person to deal with. I think it's a bit like that. Pray for hopefulness, and I get to speak about hopefulness. There you go. Um, I just want to start by showing you... Oh, gosh, not that. All that. I want to start by showing you this quote. It's a great quote by uh, Desmond Tutu. And it says, Hope is being able to see there is light despite the darkness. Um, And I want to talk to you a bit about that idea, being able to see light despite the darkness. And I really want to begin by telling you a story. Um, Lots of you will know I spent some time in India, working for Oasis in India, um, and telling you a bit of a story about somebody I know who used to live in India, well, still does live in India. Um, It's a lady called Suhani. And Suhani, um, I met when I was there. Um, I actually used to work at a project um, in a place called Grant Road in Bombay. Um, Grant Road was right in the city centre, and the project was called Oasis Aruna. Um, and the project was right in the middle of the red light district in Bombay. Um, and Aruna was um, a sort of drop-in centre for the women who worked in the red light district. And women would come in and out of the drop-in centre and they'd get um, health advice and they'd learn basic you know, English and skills and they'd come and meet friends and all of that sort of stuff. It was a, a place that people dropped in and out of. Um, and I've got to say, um, Steve's been there, he, he'll know this too, that... That place, um, Grant Road, where this place was, was just about one of the most oppressive places I've ever been in my life. Um, and the women who used to come to the, the halfway, the, the drop-in centre, um, were just about, I think, some of the most broken people I've ever met. Um, I, I've said before, I think, in some talks I've done, that talking to some of those women, it was like talking to people who were like the living dead, almost. It was like they'd given up on life, and you could see just in their eyes what a broken life they'd lived. And Suhani was a lady that I met, and she'd been trafficked into Bombay from a different part of India, um, and she'd been trafficked to work in one of the, red, in one of the brothels in the red light district. Um, and Suhani had been trafficked many years before I got to India into the red light district, and had come into contact with Oasis India through this project called Aruna. Um, and Suhani had, you know... Um, been through all the sort of health stuff they did and all of that sort of stuff, and eventually decided that she wanted to leave the red light district. And so Aruna um, helped her to leave the red light district. And to cut a really long story short, Suhani ended up um, going to a halfway home that Oasis used to run in the north of Bombay called Nirmal Bhavan. Um, and Suhani spent some time, I guess about a year at Nirmal Bhavan. And at the end of her journey, Suhani actually became employed by Oasis India, um, and started acting as a house parent to lots of other women that were coming out of the brothels to stay at Neil Mulbavan. And so, I'll just tell you a bit about the story. I want to play you a little video that is, this is Suhani, uh, just explaining um, some of that story. So here you go. My name is Suhani. 
am originally from delhi i was traffic to mumbai by someone i trusted after coming to mumbai i was forced into a brothel i did not know this was going to happen i was there for a long time and i was taken from one brothel to another later i fell ill and met zeba from oasis she brought me to the halfway home called nirmal bhavan and i started getting well in 2009 i became a house parent to the girls at nirmal bhavan i look after the girls and show them love like a mother i help with the cooking and the cleaning i make sure that they study and i also go to the hospital with them with love and gentleness i want to bring hope into their lives i know the red light area is not good and i understand their pain i know the condition of that place and i want them to come out of that and get peace and hope in their lives i want them to fulfill their dreams for their lives the way i have started to learn to read and write this is my hope and i want to share that hope with my other sisters So I just wanted to um show you that story. It's for me that's a really powerful story of hope. But I guess Suhani's story started in a pretty terrible place. Um and as I've been sort of planning what I was going to say about hopefulness, I guess the question that I've been asking myself is what possible justification is there for hope in a world that can seem so completely despairing. Um just to turn on the news, um you turn on the news and you hear stories about the Middle East falling apart. He has stories about war in Yemen that half of us don't even know is going on but is equally terrible. We hear stories about politicians lying to us. We hear stories about our corporates, big businesses lying to us about emissions in cars. We hear all sorts of terrible stuff going on in our world. And I guess in our personal lives too, um I've experienced this but I guess pretty much all of us probably have, but bits of our lives that feel quite hopeless at times. Um and i guess as i've been planning i've been thinking what possible justification have i got for feeling hopeful for feeling hopeful in a world that can sometimes feel so terrible and i guess my answer to that and these are just my thoughts so you you probably got other thoughts as, as an answer to that question my big answer that i really want to talk about for the rest of th- this little this talk really is that i think despite the world being as broken as it is and despite all of those terrible things that do happen in our world and we shouldn't ignore them despite that it seems to me that you can't possibly extinguish love in our world and i want to go on to talk about that a bit more so is my hope that like when i die i'm going to end up in a better place and i've got to sort of sit out the negativity of of the world until that happens um no it's not and in fact i think scripturally it's hard to have an a, a opinion like that really because i think the the arc of the of the scripture um isn't saying to us just sit out this terribleness in the hope that it's going to get better um you know the bible talks to us about a new heaven and a new earth and our involvement in being a foretaste of that to come so my hope isn't that i've just got to sit out some negativity until the good days come my hope is that i think love is the most powerful and the most resilient and the most potent force there is in the universe and i think ultimately it will win out Um and so I was talking to Anna about this and she was saying but how do you know for sure it's going to win how do you know love really genuinely does win 
And does that mean that in absolutely every situation in life, I think that good always triumphs bad? Like, patently, I don't. I mean, there are so many situations that you probably all know of where good doesn't seem to triumph bad. Um, And the best I can come up with that, and actually is a metaphor that I heard Steve talking about once, um, and it's a war metaphor, which is a, a little bit difficult, but Steve talked about this metaphor. And if you imagine the Second World War in 1944, so the Allies have landed on the beaches of Normandy, Um, But also at the same time, um, the Eighth Army has liberated Rome and has pushed up through Italy, um, and the Soviet Union is pushing the Nazis back to the borders of Germany. And if you look at that situation from the outside, like it was just obvious that the war was over at that point, wasn't it? Germany were going to lose the war. They were being pushed from every single direction and were going to lose the war. But that wasn't to say that the war was over. There was still another year's worth of fighting. and the Allies would win some of those battles and would lose some of those battles along the way. And my understanding of how love is going to win is a bit like that. I think that ultimately it will win. To me, like something just deep inside me says that it will. But that's not to say that in every single individual situation along the way, it's going to win in individual situations. And just to stop at this point, I think I can impact my understanding and my knowledge of that. I think the more cynical I am, the more, sometimes I even do that, me personally, as a, as a joke. I can sometimes bury that understanding if I want to, and sometimes I can actually live in that understanding and foster that understanding. Um, and I think we've got a duty to be actively hopeful. Um, we've talked throughout this series about each of these different habits. Some of them can seem quite passive, can't they? Like hope is just, well, I'll sit here and just wait for things to get better in the future. I think virtually all of these habits are about an active decision. And I think in my life, I've got to make active decisions about, do I actively want to be hopeful? And if I do, I can choose to do that or I can choose not to do that. Um, I watched uh, a documentary. Um, it must have been a couple of years ago now. And it was a documentary by Brian Cox, you know, the, uh, the scientist that's on the, on the TV the whole time. And it was a documentary. I think there were lots of parts to it. And it was a documentary about the universe. And this particular episode I watched was about, really, what was the point of the universe, I guess? What, what, you know, what's the point of it all? Um, and the particular bit I want to talk about, Brian was sitting on a beach, and he was talking about something called entropy. Now, if you're a scientist, you'll know an awful lot more about this than I do, but entro- entropy is to do with levels of disorder and order in the universe. Um, and he was sitting on a beach, and he was talking about um, sand particles on a beach. And he was saying that... Um, disordered states, chaotic states, have really high entropy. So he was looking at the sand particles on the beach and saying they're really quite disordered. If you mess them about, it still looks like a beach. They're really big levels of disorder there and have high entropy. But then he made a sand castle and said, now I've created some order in the universe with these sand particles. And this has got a lot lower entropy. And Brian's big point was that built into the fabric of the universe, and this is, I think, the second law of thermodynamics, built into the fabric of the universe is that the universe wants to go from order to disorder. It wants to go to high levels of entropy. It naturally tends from order to disorder. If you build a sandcastle on a beach, ultimately it will end up blending back into the beach and it will be gone, ultimately. And my understanding of the brokenness of the world is a little bit like that. I think built into the fabric of our universe is this sense that it just doesn't quite work right at the moment. I think there's something just built into the fabric of our lives and of the universe that doesn't quite work right. 
And my, my hope, I guess, is that despite that fact, all of us seem to want to push back against that. All of us seem to want to fight the tide of that. And I think our job is to almost, I heard somebody use this phrase the other day, but like punch holes in the darkness. Our job is to prove that love, despite some of that brokenness, love is still alive and it will not go away. Our job is to act as a foretaste of what to come, of what's to come. And I, I think short of a, a new heaven and a new earth, we're always going to be engaged in that tension. There's always going to be a sense that the universe doesn't quite work right and that we've got to fight against that. And my hope is that despite all of that, love doesn't seem to get extinguished. There's this really great quote um, that I tell Rob Bell talking to Oprah Winfrey about. And it says, when we talk about God, we're talking about a sense, however faint, however stifled, and however repressed, that hope is real and that things are heading somewhere and that somewhere is good. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it tends towards justice. I'll say that again. It says the moral arc of the universe is long, but it tends towards justice. I think our job is to prove that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it's tending towards justice. Um, The reason we read the reading at the beginning about the resurrection is I think not only have I got this sort of sense within me, and I guess probably you do as well, that love really is the most powerful force in the universe. I think scripture is just littered with an explanation of that fact too. And I think the cross and the resurrection is one of the most powerful symbols of that. To paraphrase a, a really detailed story, I think the unchecked chaos of the world led to um, Roman centurions, it led to Pontius Pilate, it led to the Pharisees, it led to ordinary people condemning Jesus to death. I think the negativity of the world reacted so violently and so vitriolically to someone who was talking about love and peace and kindness and humility that ordinary people put a man to death in a terribly painful way. And my hope is that the love that Jesus was talking about, the self-sacrificial love, was so powerful that it didn't have to return the blows with violence. And secondly, that love was so powerful, and I think the cross and the resurrection is a demonstration that no measure of hate in the universe can kill love. The resurrection is the ultimate message that when the world seems crushingly dark, love still prevails. And I think 1 Corinthians 13, which generally gets read at weddings, but I think is just a brilliant reading. Can we get it back to the laptop at the front? Yeah, there you go. 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall um, know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now three of these remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That reading to me is saying exactly that. that Whatever the world throws at it, love always prevails. And it's the greatest force in the universe. I I think 
my big point really is that the most terrible brokenness of the world seems like sometimes it's killed love altogether and yet it continues to prevail. That's my um, hope really. There's this great story I read while I was preparing. I mean, it's a great and terrible story of a lady that um, lived in Rwanda uh, during the genocide. And she was a Tutsi and her family were Tutsis. Um, and you'll probably know the, the story of the Rwandan genocide. But these people were in, under threat and so uh, hid in a church um, along with lots of other people. Um, and some Hutu militiamen came to the church armed to the teeth with machetes and massacred everybody in the building. And this lady, Adele, was in that church um, and her family, her husband and her children were killed, but she was just severely injured. Um, And after the war, um, she survived, and after the war, she decided that she didn't want to live with the bitterness of what had happened to her. She wanted to actively be hopeful. Um, And so she decided that in order to be actively hopeful, and despite the pain of that decision, she was going to spend time going into the prisons where lots of the Hutu Hutu militiamen were in in prison and meeting with some of these Hutu militiamen. And she went into the prison, and the story goes that she met um, up with people and she met with a guy called Louis. uh, And and Louis... um, she met with him one morning and she walked into a room and came face to face with the man who had massacred her family, massacred her husband and her children. Uh, Louis didn't have a family himself. And again, to cut a long story short, Louis begged for forgiveness from this lady, Adele. Um, And not only did Adele choose to forgive this man, but when he left prison, she asked Louis to go and live with her as her adopted son. Um, And to this day, Adele and Louis this man lived together as mother and adopted son. For me, even when the darkness of the world looks like it's killed love, looks like it's completely extinguished it, it still exists. And I think the cross and resurrection and that story we just read, Jesus is saying to us, come this way, be actively hopeful, even if it hurts. Um, the story of the cross and resurrection is Jesus being actively hopeful and actively putting self-sacrificial love into practice, and it hurts. I think Jesus is saying to us, be, choose to be actively hopeful, even if it hurts. Choose to be actively hopeful, even if it means giving up your weekend to volunteer on the farm or for Harvest for Hope. Choose to be actively hopeful, even if it means giving away your money to the point where you don't want to. Choose to be actively hopeful, even if it means, for me and for all of us, even if it means like giving away your emotional energy to the point where you wish you hadn't. Choose to be actively hopeful. And I want to just finish with uh, this quote. This is a fantastic bit from the beginning of John's Gospel. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I guess, for me, hope is that. That love prevails. Like, even in some of the darkest things that we see in our world, love cannot be extinguished. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and isn't ever going to overcome it.